Welcome to the Euro Money podcast series, Financing a Sustainable Planet, Episode 2, Greening the Economy. This podcast is brought to you by Standard Chartered. Supporting clients for more than 150 years, Standard Chartered empowers communities and inspires change through ambitious social and environmental initiatives through its banking activities. Make sure you keep listening till the end of the podcast to hear our specialist content editor, Charlie Corbett, speak with Standard Chartered's global head of sustainable finance, Daniel Hanna, for the in-house view. Standard Chartered, driving commerce and prosperity whilst contributing to sustainable growth across the world's most dynamic markets. Indonesia an archipelago of around 18,000 islands and one of the most populous nations on Earth, is home to huge areas of rainforest, covering half of its terrain, rich with unique plant and animal life. These areas provide a vivid illustration of the environmental challenges facing the planet and the urgent need for action, including the financing of a greener economy. Over the centuries... Indonesia's islands have proved an irresistible natural resource, plundered by colonial powers for spices, coffee and timber. Even today, these areas, home to evocative and endangered species such as tigers, elephants and the orangutan, are being exploited. Trade in palm oil, rubber and pulp have destroyed more than half of the country's rainforests in the past hundred years. In order to meet the world's increasing demand for palm oil, huge areas of rainforest continue to be cleared. Often Just as in this World Wildlife Fund international report from 2011, environmentalist groups have long warned of the negative impacts of the palm oil industry and deforestation. Indonesia is the world's biggest producer of palm oil. It's also losing its forests at an alarming rate. Forests are being burned to clear areas to make way for palm oil plantations. The slash and burn of the undergrowth and trees causes a deadly haze that can hang above the region hundreds of kilometres from the original fires. These emissions are adding to climate change and causing severe health problems for the population. But the palm oil plantations have brought benefits to many lifting rural communities involved in its production out of poverty. For developing countries, there's a tension in how to balance care for the environment with the need to support local economies. I mean, in the past, finance minister never talked about uh, the climate change, except if it has become a cost. It's actually very, very important of recognising the need to take this issue up to the upstream level that is on the policy level. That's Indonesian finance minister and former World Bank Managing Director Sri Mulyani Indrawati speaking at a Brookings Institute event in Washington. Sri Mulyani has helped her country increase its GDP fivefold since the turn of the millennium, but has spoken of concerns over how this can be sustained. By 2030, we are not going to achieve the poverty reduction, but instead it's going to have an additional 100 million people uh, pushing down to the poverty level because of the climate change.
Indonesia's growth has slowed in recent years, with a tail-off in demand for several key export commodities, such as coal, oil, gas, palm oil and rubber, the very products whose use is blamed for environmental woes, the felling of trees and destruction of peatland forest floor causing rising global temperatures and sea levels. Along with environmental concerns, this represents a serious threat to life on an island nation where 40 million people live within a few kilometres of the coast and where, according to research by the University of Chicago, pollution has reduced life expectancy by five years. A new green economy must emerge from the haze over Southeast Asia, where many workers are faced with little choice but to support their families by working in a palm oil and timber economy which has caused environmental devastation. According to David Brand, CEO at New Forests, a sustainable real assets manager focusing on forestry and conservation, Southeast Asia's dense tree-covered regions encapsulate the twin challenges of environmental preservation and economic growth. People recognize that the world's forests contain more carbon than is in the atmosphere. So we have to stop the emissions from the forest and land use sector. Secondly, half of the diversity of life on Earth is reliant on forests. But the problem is there are billions of people that live and are dependent on forests. So we have, if we want to conserve the forest, we also have to create positive community benefits. Brand believes New Forests Fund has an answer to these challenges by which environmental, social and economic needs can be met through their Asian holdings. In Laos, we've invested in a 14,000 hectare plantation and 5,000 individual farmers that have grown about a hectare of trees each. These farmers' per capita income is about 2,000 US dollars per year. When they grow a crop of trees for 10 years, that's something like $10,000 of additional income, and that has a real impact on livelihoods and, and economic uh, development in those areas. We sell that timber then into furniture makers in Vietnam, who are then making furniture and selling it to Europe and the United States or into China. And so you can see these global supply chains and how increasingly they're rewarding sustainable investors with a higher price for the timber and that then drives you know, more areas to convert into this more sustainable investment approach. And those investor returns are tied into a sustainable offering in innovative ways. New Forest's latest Asian fund uses a blended finance approach, which limits the risks of the project. Mainstream investors are offered returns of 10%, while others accept lower returns, in exchange for knowing the proceeds are directed towards supporting sustainable goals, such as reforestation, and biodiversity restoration projects. That's the kind of thing that we're trying to do with our investment programs is on the one hand, generate solid risk-adjusted returns, but also these uh, positive impacts that are tied into things like commitments of the Paris Agreement, the Sustainable Development Goals, how is our investment programs having a net positive impact on uh, carbon stocks in forests, we're moving towards measurable indicators across all of these features that we can report alongside our profit and loss and balance sheet. And so last year, you know, we made our first attempt at pulling all this data together across all of our assets and, and putting that into our sustainability report. New Forest's investment example shows a path toward greener and more sustainable economic growth. And similar investments can be found across Asia. One of the key instruments in supporting a greener economy has been green bonds, 
which provide an opportunity for investment in environmentally friendly projects with fixed income returns. In Indonesia, a $1.25 billion sovereign green bond launched in 2018 has focused on drawing investment away from the extraction of fossil fuels and palm oil exports, which degrade natural resources. The Indonesian government's Low Carbon Development Report of last year is now influencing the country's five-year economic plan. It recommends that green investment in low-carbon infrastructure, renewable energy sources, reforestation and agricultural productivity could deliver an annual 6% increase in GDP over the next quarter century. This will help to preserve rainforests, reduce emissions by more than 40% in the coming decade, and create 15 million jobs in the process. Such initiatives show how efforts towards reducing emissions and transitioning to clean energy and infrastructure are gaining the backing of national governments. And the development of the green bond market has enabled them to link these initiatives to finance. Led by China, Asia saw the highest growth rate in the green bond market in 2018. We talk about green bonds a lot in the industry. Heri Cho has been part of the change in her role as Head of Sustainable Finance for Asia-Pacific at ING and with ICMA, the International Capital Markets Association. What is driving these? Number one, in particular in Asia, regulatory changes does play a big role. Secondly, companies that have traditionally been a bit more emissions heavy have been getting the knock on the door from investors to say, we want to know what you're doing. So this is a wake-up call. And then, of course, Asia is where you see the impact of climate change. When you're living in a city or a country where, which has air that you literally cannot breathe, it really hits home that it is time to make changes to ensure that we have air that we can breathe in the future and water that is clean. According to Cho, key to the expansion of the green bond market in Asia has been transparency giving investors confidence in this new sustainable asset class. The standardisation of metrics and benchmarks will be vital to ensure that sustainable finance in the region continues to grow. We need to ensure that there are market mechanisms that allows this to take place. And I'm talking the likes of ICMA's Green Bond Principles or the Climate Bonds Initiative, the ASEAN Green Social Sustainability Bond Standards, It is so imperative to make sure that at least we are aware what measurements we are using in sharing of the impact indicators used and so on. Yet despite these encouraging signs, Cho is clear on the need for further collaboration and products to grow the sustainable finance market. Are we doing enough today? Simple answer is no. It's not because people or companies or governments simply do not want to do something. It is also about capacity building. How can we ensure that the bottom-up movement also meets the top-down view that sustainability is something that needs to happen? There are a number of global as well as regional networks and associations that are stepping up. For example, Network for Greening the Financial System. Also, from the Belt and Road Initiative perspective, there's also recently been launched the Green Investment Principles. The next step in securing future sustainability will be finding a good home for well-meaning investment. Investor appetite for green financial opportunities has never been higher. But for a region still heavily reliant on coal, finding purely green projects is sometimes a challenge. Other asset classes are emerging, 
as in the case of Castle Peak Power Company's transition bond of 2017. It helped finance natural gas projects in Hong Kong, away from coal. It's not a shift to green energy, but it does improve carbon emissions and increase efficiency. Other means to ensuring green bonds maintain their integrity and reduce so-called greenwashing is through certification. Big Green Power. In Thailand, the B Grim Power Company has issued the country's first green bond certified by the Climate Bonds Initiative, or CBI, with the Asian Development Bank as sole investor, with $155 million towards supporting renewable energy projects. And in the Philippines, AC Energy, a subsidiary of the Ayala Corporation, issued its maiden bond this year the first in Southeast Asia to receive public listing on the Singapore Exchange. Both these issuances have been supported by the Asian Development Bank, or ADB. Its Director for Infrastructure Finance, Jackie Sertani, worked on gaining the CBI certification for both deals, a process he says provides an edge in securing funding. We have an in-house expert who then works with the Climate Bonds Initiative and gets this green bond certified. So they will then look at the underlying projects that our bond will finance to ensure that it meets the green bond principles. In addition, the client in BGRIM, in every step of the way, they need to comply with all of ADB's rigorous safeguard standards, which we then go and monitor on a yearly basis. Satani adds that to move markets further toward green development requires an increase in opportunity, scale and standards. The ADB, I mean, the D stands for development. So the projects that we look at must have a clear developmental impact. There are many opportunities out here in Asia. The key is to find bankable issuers. I think the key highlight on the AC Energy Green Bond transaction is the Ayala Group is a very well-known conglomerate. By listing on the Singapore Stock Exchange, That provides an additional attraction to both institutional uh, life insurance companies and asset management companies who are prepared to invest in green bonds so long as there's liquidity in the market. It's not only Asia where economic growth is being supported by green bonds and green finance more broadly. Since the World Bank launched the first green bond in 2008, Over $600 billion worth of such products have been issued. What happened was a combination of us coming up with our environmental strategy. Here's Kristalina Georgieva, CEO at the World Bank, speaking in a documentary about the 10th anniversary of the green bond market, describing how it all started. And Mother Nature, through catastrophic disasters, telling us it is time to act. Heike Reichelt is Head of Investor Relations at the World Bank. She's been involved in the process since the beginning and says green bonds have encouraged action to be taken to include sustainability within economic growth plans and financing. The conversation between issuers and investors used to be exclusively about things like yield levels, maturity, currencies, and now you can't have a conversation without questions about the environmental policies, social policies, how we invest the money. It started 
super tiny with just a few investors looking at this, asking for this. And if you think about it now, it's still tiny in the scheme of things, it's less than 1%, but that totally understates the effect that green bonds have had to change capital markets. And it's the structure of supranationals such as the World Bank, their AAA rating, and the ability to find and report the impact of projects eligible for the allocation of green funds, which has provided a stable base for the market to grow. The CBI's figures show supranationals have accounted for 11% of green bond issuances, with a further 21% coming from government sources, both sovereign and local. The World Bank's Green Impact Report provides investors transparency and data from the projects they are helping to support. This information demonstrates the global impact of green bonds in environmental, social and economic terms. Looking back 10 years and considering our impact report, we can show investors that with their support, we have been able to finance things such as reforestation projects in Mexico that have resulted in CO2 emission reductions of about 1.5 million barrels of oil consumed and prevented 4.8 million tons annually of untreated wastewater from flowing into rivers in China. Now, we hear often from issuers that it's so much work to look at the types of things that are being financed and to report back. And I try to make the point that it's actually, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for issuers to show what they're doing. And if you measure something, that's how you can change behaviours even within your own firm. It's this versatility and global reach which is so important if today's environmental challenges are to be met. And that means the greening of the economy has to scale up. Key to the prospects for the growth of green finance in Asia, and indeed globally, is China. In 2015, the country announced a five-year plan that included improving the quality of the environment. It was also China that introduced green finance to the agenda at the G20 summit just a year later. The $34 billion in Chinese green bond issuance in 2018 represents a remarkable change of outlook for the world's biggest contributor to CO2 emissions and placed China second behind the US in total green bond issuance for that year. China's importance on the global market will only increase as President Xi Jinping continues to roll out the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI the largest industrial project of this century. The initiative has seen China investing heavily in global infrastructure and trade routes, described as a 21st century Silk Road. And as China's green bond growth shows, political will can help move the market. The scale of BRI represents an opportunity for green finance as money flows through the Belt and Road, contributing to infrastructure development on an unprecedented scale. Yet critics have cast doubt on the purity of its green motives. China has undoubtedly made improvements around green finance. For example, removing non-green projects which had tainted the suitability of some of its green bonds. Yet, can a country, which recently relaxed regulations over the building of new domestic coal plants, and whose BRI projects continue to include brown development finance, lead the charge to green the economy. The key challenge when you do a green finance is making sure that you are financing real green assets. The highest risk in doing that is clearly the risk of greenwashing. Dominique Duval, head of sustainable banking for Asia-Pacific at Credit Agricole Corporate and Investment Bank, says ensuring capital flows to projects with true environmental impact 
is a key challenge across the whole green finance sector, not just the future of BRI. I think we need to review what the need in terms of green assets and green finance. And we need to talk about the key targets. The key target is climate change fights. And there is a need of additional investment for green assets. So green bond is not enough today. But first, there is a need of additional green investment, and that will drive the need for additional green finance. Yet Deval is optimistic over the prospects for green finance in the region. She says the sheer size of the BRI and its number of global participants represent a real opportunity to coordinate a shift to a greener economy. It involves at least 70 countries receiving 30% of global foreign direct investment. So uh, you know that the objective of the BRI is uh, to improve uh, connectivity and cooperation on a transcontinental scale, in particular for transportation and renewable energy, which are clearly uh, green assets. So there is a a strong momentum in the region, and I'm very uh, optimistic in the coming years. And so, as China continues the largest economic growth project ever witnessed, the tension between growth needs and global sustainability will continue to pose questions for decision-makers in the financial sector. If green bonds have shown the way towards sustainability, yet only represent a tiny fraction of the overall bond market, how can we move the needle on green finance in a meaningful way? The World Bank's Heike Reichelt again. There's a, a saying, what gets measured gets done. If you can measure the impact that your projects have, positive and negative, you can then try to do more things that have positive impact. And that's really the, the type of change that green bonds are helping catalyze. Now, it's still the case that investors are not taking on project risk, so it's the same pricing for them. And that's okay to start with, but at some point there has to be a change in the whole financial structure. Now, capital flows to where it gets the best risk-adjusted return. So in the real economy, there needs to be a better pricing of externalities so that that gets factored in. And that's something that green bonds aren't able to solve on their own, even with regulation and transparency. So we need many things to be able to solve this problem. You know, like I said, climate risk is a global problem. So there's global opportunities um, for investors to make a difference in countries all around the world but we need more. (laughs) We can't be happy with what we have. We definitely need more. And as new products emerge to join green bonds, innovation will prove important to tap into the scale of finance required for meaningful change. For example, in the past few years, green and sustainability loans have outstripped green bonds in terms of annual growth. These offer a simple formula to encourage positive impact, particularly in the corporate sector, by tying costs to the environmental and social performance of the borrower. In this dynamic market, the future shapes, size and impact of green finance is being determined. So join us for the rest of this series as we continue to explore how finance can support our planet, helping to address the climate and social issues affecting our world today. And now we're going to hand over to the Standard Chartered in-house view, hosted by Charlie Corbett, Euromoney's specialist content editor. Welcome to our second in-house view on sustainable finance. We are joined again by Daniel Hanna, 
who is Global Head of Sustainable Finance at Standard Chartered. Welcome back, Daniel. Thanks, Charlie. Good to be back. The fundamental question every government must ask itself today when considering its infrastructure must be, how can we provide the critical infrastructure our country needs that will drive growth and boost living standards at a price we can afford and in a way that is in harmony with the environment? Daniel, Standard Chartered recently stopped funding coal-fired power stations. I think this kind of gets to the heart of the dilemma I've just mentioned. Just how do you strike that balance? between keeping the lights on, but also your, your duty towards the environment? Charlie, I think it's a, it's a fantastic question, I, and I agree completely. It does go to the heart of a lot of the debate and thought that we put into this. Our commitment to the markets that we operate in, whether that's Indonesia, Vietnam, Kenya or Nepal, is very much that our financing will have a positive impact. But, but as you say, the governments there and the people within those societies expect the ability to have reliable power, have access to clean water, and to be able to create jobs and growth. And in some places, they have very large coal deposits. And so we debated quite extensively internally what was right. Was it right that we continue to allow the financing of coal power projects where that is supporting reliable power, but we know is having that negative impact on the climate and pollution within societies, or whether we felt that the climate crisis as it was, was so large that actually we couldn't be financing that coal, even at the cost um, that that may come to to those sort of cheap, reliable power. Well, where we concluded is, is frankly, it's not good enough that that's the choice. Uh, it's not good enough that the choice is either coal or no power. And, and what we are committing to do is, on the one hand, we've announced that we're not doing any no, new coal power plants, as you say, but also we are doubling down on our commitment to finance renewables in some of these markets and to use the sort of expertise and capabilities that we're developing within sustainable finance to find ways to ensure that you can grow renewable, low-carbon power in places like Zambia and Nepal and others. Is there any particular piece of next generation technology that you feel ticks all the boxes in terms of solving a specific infrastructure-related problem, but in a way that's good for local people and the environment? I mean, I think what's hugely exciting is that in solar and wind in particular, we have seen the costs coming down so significantly that it is now becoming, it's now reaching what is called grid parity. What's also really interesting is last year, for the first year, more installed renewable capacity was put in in emerging markets than it was in the developed world. And we've seen places like India emerge, for example, as one of the world's largest renewable auction markets. We were involved in what we think was probably the single largest renewable project in the UAE within the Middle East. So I think there's a huge amount of really interesting things going on in the renewable space. And that really does give me hope for for the future. I want to talk now a little bit about the difficulty of financing these kinds of projects. The UN said in November that, and I quote, a major challenge in financing the 2030 UN Sustainable Development Agenda will be attracting and directing public and private investments to areas that support the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals. Just how do you convince people to invest in these projects? After all, often you've got to tie your money up for a long time and returns don't often compensate for the risks you're taking. 
I mean, I think there's, there's a really interesting dichotomy going on in the world of infrastructure financing. When I go speak to ministers of finance across our markets in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, they tell me I have all these projects that need financing, they're good projects, and I just cannot get the capital. Yet when I go talk to the large public pension funds or sovereign wealth funds, the big custodians of huge amount of capital, they say we have all this capital looking for good projects, and we can't find any bankable projects to invest into. And and somehow it's these two are not meeting. And I think there are a number of different reasons for that risk or risk perception. So, for example, there is a, a reluctance from many investors to invest in African infrastructure. Yet African infrastructure has a lower default rate than Asia or the US, for example. There's also this issue about the size of the projects. When you talk to very large investors, they want to deploy hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of capital at one go. It may be that some of these projects are relatively small in these countries. What we're trying to do at Standard Charter is come up with a number of different ways to kind of bridge these two gaps. And because we are active, a UK-listed bank that's got offices in the US and others and talking to investors all the time, um, but on the ground in a lot of these markets, we feel we're in a very strong place to kind of intermediate those two capital flows and try and solve for this dilemma. According to an industry survey in 2018, Standard Charter was ranked as the second biggest institutional investor in blended finance. What is blended finance and what role does it have to play in supporting these kinds of projects? Blended finance is basically taking development capital or, or capital that's come from aid from places like governments or the World Bank or the United Nations and then effectively blending that with commercial capital from a banks like Standard Chartered or private sector investors. And the benefit of doing that is from an investment perspective, you sort of partly de-risk it because you have the involvement of someone like the World Bank, for example. But the benefit from the borrower's perspective is they get to massively expand the amount of investment that can go in. You know, From the World Bank's perspective, for example, they may be able to lend a dollar, but they could guarantee $4 effectively for the same balance sheet component and encourage the private sector to come in. So we've done blended finance transactions on things like infrastructure for renewables, food security, and a number of different other areas. And it has great power. And it's one of these things that really we will see a lot more of as we try and collectively work out how we can solve for some of the financing needs for raising living standards across the markets. Finally, Daniel, if there was one thing in the world you could change that would accelerate progress towards achieving the UN's sustainable development goals, what would that be? Well, I guess $28 trillion, which is the gap that we have uh, in financing uh, the SDGs by 2030. But on a serious note, I actually, in some ways, I don't think money is the problem. There is a lot of money out there. What we need to work out is how we can get that capital to go to where it matters the most. Um, there is a lot of financing that's interested in the SDGs and green, but unfortunately, most of it at the moment is staying within the developed markets. I think what we are trying to work out is how we can work with partners in the investment world and with partners in the development world to get that money to go where it matters most, to financing clean energy in Asia, to powering the growth of exports in Africa uh, and financial inclusion in, across all the markets. Daniel Hanna, thank you very much for joining us today. This podcast was presented and reported by me, Robin Lieber. Producer was Richard Myron, managing editor Helen Avery, marketing from Mia Bailey. The executive producer is Christopher Hunt, and the standard chartered in-house view was reported by Charlie Corbett, Euromoney specialist content editor. 
Financing a Sustainable Planet is produced by Earshot Strategies. And our thanks to Standard Chartered for supporting this series. <laughs>